Hello, and welcome to the Rob's Discovery podcast, where I, Rob Handy, will be talking about life here at the two and a half acre wood, my own one hectare forest garden homestead, situated on the northern slopes of the Mendip Hills in Somerset, southwest England. Surrounded by lush forests and trickling brooks, this oasis of biodiversity and abundance was founded in 2011. Each episode of this podcast will touch on all things permaculture, with subjects ranging from perennial vegetables for the smaller garden to the benefits of balanced beekeeping. This episode is an audio recording of an illustrated one-hour talk I gave to a local gardening club in Banwell Village Hall in February this year called Birds and Bees, Animal Partners of the Forest Garden. I take questions from the audience on all things forest garden domestic animal related, including honeybees, geese, ducks, chickens, and general off-grid homesteading life. If you'd like to learn more about my life here on the homestead, then please do visit my YouTube channel, also called Rob's Discovery, where you'll find a host of heartwarming videos in which I document the process of creating the forest garden while discovering the bounty of nature within my plot and the surrounding countryside. On a hill, near a wood, where nobody goes, up a track, through a gate, the food forest grows, with secrets and treasures for everyone's pleasure, and Rob's discover, Rob's discovery. Now to set the scene. It's a cold, clear night. I wend through the windy lanes in my little VW polo to the village of Banwell and pull up outside the village hall. Crowds of people are filing in, in dribs and drabs, talking excitedly about gardening and the potential winner of the homemade jam competition that I'll have the privilege to judge at the end of the evening. Hello. <laughs> the power of the microphone. I've got your attention. Hello again. This is my third time here. I'm really pleased to have been asked back. The first time, I believe I did just a general introduction to forest gardening. And then last year, when my computer was working with the projector, I talked about unusual plants and perennial vegetables. And this time, it is supposed to be, or will be, about about the animals of the forest garden, as in the so-called domesticated animals. The bees, and the ducks, and the chickens, and the geese. And I did prepare a beautiful slideshow illustrating all these animals and their natural habitats, but my old computer will not talk with the projector. So, you can't see the picture this evening. However, my glamorous assistant is recording me for a YouTube video and in a couple of weeks, whenever I get around to it, I'm going to edit this talk together with the photographs you were supposed to have seen tonight. So you shan't miss out. So you, if, you, if you have the internet and you know how to use YouTube, it'll, it'll be free to watch. So all you have to type in is Rob's Discovery, which is my YouTube channel, and then you'll be able to watch this talk again and see all the pictures that are supposed to go with it. So, so not all is lost. 
but in the meantime, I shall have to use my wildly gesticulating arms to create the image in your minds of what's going on in the garden. Well, thank you for dragging yourselves out on a, on a dark, cold evening to come to a, I was going to say a cold hall, but it's quite warm now, actually. Um, yeah, especially to see me, unless the AGM was the highlight, which I don't know. It was, let's, let's see how it goes. Maybe, maybe it was. Um, for those of you who have been here the last two times when I was speaking, my name's Rob. Hello again. I come, <laughs> come from the village of East Harptree on, yeah, kind of this side of the Mendip Hills, up on the, the northern slope, the dark side. I'm just up from the Chew Valley. And coming up to 12 years ago, I was fortunate enough to acquire a hectare of land, which is about two and a half acres. And I've spent all that time transforming it into a forest garden. It wasn't a very popular term a few years ago, and people didn't know what I meant by forest garden. It's sometimes the term agroforestry or food forest project. There are lots of different terms. But just like the last two times I've been here, I'm just gonna read a short paragraph, a long paragraph, to describe what a forest garden is before we go on to the animals of the forest garden. So, if you're sitting comfortably, <laughs> I shall begin. Picture yourself in a forest where almost everything around you is food. Mature and maturing fruit and nut trees form an open canopy. If you look carefully, you can see fruits swelling on many branches, pears, apples, persimmons, pecans and chestnuts. Shrubs fill the gaps in the canopy. They bear raspberries, blueberries, currants, hazelnuts and other lesser known fruits and flowers and other nuts at different times of the year. Assorted native wildflowers, wild edibles, herbs and perennial vegetables thickly cover the ground. You use many of these plants for food or medicine. Some attract beneficial insects, birds or butterflies. Others act as soil builders and some just help keep out the weeds. Here and there, vines climb on trees and shrubs or arbors with fruit hanging through the foliage, hardy kiwis, grapes and passionflower fruits. In sunnier glades, large stands of Jerusalem artichokes grow together with groundnut vines. These plants support one another as they store energy in their roots for later harvest and winter storage. Their bright yellow and deep violet flowers enjoy the radiant warmth from the sky. Sometimes. This is an edible forest garden. And I used to say when I did these talks about seven, eight, nine years ago, that that is what the forest garden should look like. But now it's coming into year 12 it more or less does look like that. It's actually working. It's taken a long time to do it, but now that it's reached maturity, all the different plants, well, I used to boast that there were 440 different edible plants, but since getting the geese, that's sort of now about 290. <laughs> but, but we'll come on to the geese. But it's got to the stage where those plants are creating a miniature symbiotic ecosystem on the one hectare, and all the relationships between the plants are working to help each other out and it's actually more or less self-sustaining with very very little maintenance and I used to boast that oh it's a maintenance free garden but whilst it was being set up there was actually a lot to do but now that it is mature there's very little to do I mean I haven't cut the grass since September so it's looking quite scruffy but as soon as I mow the paths in the spring everything else will look 
in place. I mean, that's my only real element of control over the place, is keeping the grass cut. Because it's a bit like framing a picture, isn't it? If you've got gardens, as soon as you cut the grass, all the messy borders look intentional. It's like horrible abstract art. And as soon as you put a nice frame around it, it looks, it looks okay or passable. So the forest garden's like that. It's got sneaking networks of, of paths weaving throughout it that makes all the so-called, well, seemingly messy areas look really good. But coming on to the animals, I mean, there are, there are lots of animals in the garden. I mean, to start with, 12 years ago, it was just an open site. It was just a, a hectare of, of grassland. And occasionally a badger trundled through it, and a, sometimes a buzzard swooped over looking for non-existent mice. But over the years, the number of wild species have really built up because it's not just a garden to feed people, but it's also for the wildlife too. It, it sort of ticks all the boxes. And just in the last few years, it now has a, a healthy barn owl population and tawny owls. There are grass snakes, myriad insects. There are field mice and dormice. And because, well, that attracts also the, the um, raptorish birds. They call raptors? Yeah, the predatory birds. And there are foxes, well, for better or worse. And uh, deer sometimes come in and nibble the trees and rabbits. But the whole place is actually rabbit-proofed. And that's an important point that you mentioned because... In the first year, before planting anything, the, apart from walking around and assessing the site and working where the frost pockets were and where the rain collected and what the soil was like and where the sun moved around so as not to plant anything, well, the shade-loving things in the shade and the sun-loving things in the sun, I had to rabbit-proof the whole place. And I have mentioned this in previous years, but I'll mention it again because it's really important. The easiest way of rabbit-proofing a garden is a three-foot roll of chicken mesh. I mean, it was a very long roll of mesh around the whole hectare, but a three-foot roll of chicken mesh, and you lay it in an L-shape, uh, two feet down and one foot out in the direction that the rabbits are coming from. So around my garden, the L-shape, the bottom of the L was out towards where the rabbits are coming from. And then just for a few weeks, you just lay some weights on the, on the flat bit of wire just to stop, stop it from sort of riding up, really. And then the grass locks it down in. So there's no labour-intensive digging. You just lay it on the ground, the grass locks it in place. And you see the rabbits and sometimes the badgers, they get to the wire, they try and dig down because they can't, because there's wire underneath their feet, but they don't think to step backwards. They just move sideways, they try again, and they're little indentations where they're trying all the way along, but they don't step backwards and they give up and they go away. So the whole place is rabbit-proofed. However, last, it was last summertime, maybe it was the year before, there was a breeding pair of kestrels in the woods nearby and this small female kestrel tried to pick up a rabbit to take it off to kill it or drop it from a height, whatever it is kestrels do, and it couldn't quite make it. It dropped it over the boundary of the forest garden, and it was like biological warfare because it was a pregnant rabbit. And, and since then, there's a rather healthy rabbit population underneath my shed, and they do come out, and sometimes my mum's dog comes up, and he does catch the occasional rabbit and just kills it with a quick shake. Um, but there are still a few left, and they're even more detrimental than the geese to my salady things. But that's, that's um, yeah, the, the unwanted animals of the forest garden. But I should mention, I'll mention things in the order in which I acquired them, perhaps. I've had the land for 12 years, but I've been keeping bees for about 18 years. And I say keeping bees, that used to be the term that I used because that implies that you keep them in one place and you have control over them. 
before I go on, are there any beekeepers here tonight? People who have kept Okay. That's fine. I've got to be careful what I say because I, I do consider myself a so-called natural beekeeper. And some traditional beekeepers don't like that because I do let the bees swarm when they want to swarm. And that's what they do. It keeps them healthy. It's the way they divide themselves naturally. Half of the bees go off with the old queen. The other half stay behind. That's how they naturally spread. Sometimes when the habitat's not suitable anymore, they just all disappear anyway. And that happens quite frequently. So I take a very hands-off approach to beekeeping. I, I used to do it by having the hives and queen excluders and moving all the frames around and manipulating them each week, which is very, very good for honey production. It can be good for the bees if you're very, very good at it. But if you don't get it perfect, there are, I, I found that there are better ways for me of, of doing it. And over the, this two and a half acres, I have 10 vacant hives and usually about three or four of them are occupied at one time. And that is because I just let the bees move on when they're ready and they will often move into one of the vacant hives on the site. I did actually have, I don't have it now, but I had prepared, I'd specially recorded a five minute video explaining all about my methods of beekeeping so I wouldn't have to use notes and it would be on the projector. However, <laughs> But it's not working, but if you do watch this again on the internet, I'll include that video I made so you, so you can watch it. This is a national hive, and most people who keep bees, in this country at least, will keep them in this sort of hive. They've been used for the past 100 years or so, especially by people who keep bees the so-called traditional way. I've used them for 14 years or more since I began to keep bees. But now I still use them, but in a slightly different way to which they were intended. The National Hive consists of a roof, a floor, and a series of vertically stacked boxes of two different sizes. There is the deep box that's called the brood box, and that's where the queen is kept by virtue of a piece of material called a queen excluder. And because she's a little bit bigger than the rest of the worker bees and the drones, she's not able to squeeze through, and therefore she cannot lay her eggs in the shallower boxes above that are called supers. So those boxes are filled with honey, but because the queen is artificially not allowed through, therefore she can't lay any eggs and there can be no brood in those boxes. They are just for honey that the beekeeper will systematically remove and take off for themselves. And the brood box, the deep boxes, are where all the eggs are laid and most of the action takes place. I used to keep bees that way, and now I keep them in a very, very different way. In fact, keep isn't the right word. I'm not even a beekeeper. I create habitat for bees. I create homes for them, and I let the swarms come and go as they please, depending on what's best for the bees. In fact, when I first started this forest garden project, I had eight or nine different hives set up around the plot in my arrogance thinking they were all the perfect habitat for honeybees to move into and then just to teach me a lesson a swarm of bees moved into a pair of wellington boots in my shed 
so it shows what I know, doesn't it? Still quite wet in the air, very good for the garden. The Warre Hive by a monk, a French monk I believe, who invented it called Abbe Emile Warre. I ought to have saved the best till last, but I couldn't wait, as this is the hive I have had most success with over the years. It's another vertical top bar hive, and by vertical I mean the boxes are stacked up vertically, as opposed to the horizontal hive we'll be looking at next. And that takes advantage of the fact that bees love to build comb downwards. And this is another top bar hive, it's frameless, so it just has rows of bars in the top of each box. One there, one there. And there are gaps between these bars about a bee space wide so that the bees can walk up and down and move up and down throughout the hive doing their work. The principle of managing it is because bees love to build downwards, you take the top box off every year, empty it for honey and wax and other bee products for yourself, and then with two strong friends ideally, you lift the hive and put that box back underneath. And you do this every year so the bees are always building downwards. That has many advantages. To start with, the bees are far less likely to swarm because they never run out of space. The other advantage is the comb is being renewed every year so there's never any old comb in there to get diseased. And the third advantage is the fact that it doesn't require opening it every week for management. Isn't, there are no queen excluders, there are no frames to move around. And the reason that's done, mainly half the reason that's done in, in the National Hive or other hives, is to stop them from swarming. Swarming? <laughs> swarming. But in the Warre Hive, there's none of that and by not opening it up all the time, just once a year, very importantly, all the atmosphere and the heat and the pheromones and all the medicinal volatile compounds are kept within the hive that otherwise, when it's opened, are lost. And just taking heat as an example, honeybees love to keep their hive at a constant 37.5 degrees centigrade, which incidentally is human body temperature. And when the lid is taken off to, to manage them, all that heat is lost and they take three days for it to build back up again. And that's important for a number of reasons to keep it hot in there. One of the important reasons is that the Varroa mite, that blood-sucking parasite that most honeybees in the world have, especially Europe, is that the Varroa mite thrive at slightly lower temperatures, 35, 36 degrees, but they can't really tolerate it at 37 and a half or above. So by keeping the hive hot, the worry hive has very thick wood and they can keep the temperature they like in there by not opening it, the, the mites are far less likely to thrive. And incidentally, it's another good time to plug my YouTube channel called Rob's Discovery, because there's a whole section, there are 10, 11, 12 videos, especially about natural beekeeping and my methods. And it's, even if you're not interested in beekeeping, it's quite visually pleasing, because quite often it involves me physically chasing swarms across the garden, running after them with a camera, seeing where they're going and losing them in the woods. And it's, it's entertaining sometimes. Um, typical, isn't it? Go inside for three minutes, and there they go. There they go. 
there are probably 50,000 bees there. I should say at this point that this is not a talk so much as a conversation, very much like the last two talks I did here. And if you remember, I invited you to ask questions throughout because it's such a big subject that at any point you can either shout out or put your hand up like you're in school and, and give a question, I'm happy to answer it because it would actually help me as well because I was relying on the photographs to know what to talk about next, but now I don't have them. I'm sort of a little bit lost into, into what direction to go in. Perhaps I could answer something you'd like to know more about. Please ask a question. Does yeah. anyone... Yes, sir. Um, the way you're talking, your bee population, your beehives are, are thriving, but we hear that bees are declining. So my bees, I talk like they're thriving, but bees are declining. Yeah, yeah and, and they actually are, and it's probably all the reasons that you've heard of. I mean, I'm not the expert, I just happen to have bees. Um, probably all the reasons that you've heard about why they're declining are true, whether it's pesticides or herbicides or glyphosate or lack of habitat, lack of forage, whether it's due to the radio signals, I think it's, I think it's the lot, actually. And it's just, they're all contributing. Um, but yes, my bees are healthy and they don't seem to be affected by these things. That's probably because on the one hectare, they, they seldom have to travel beyond that, even though honeybees will travel up to three miles for forage, for, for nectar and pollen and other things they collect. Mine don't have to go further than that because there is so much growing that this one hectare of forest garden can quite happily sustain at least two, maybe three, sometimes four colonies of honeybees at once. So they're not affected by the loss of habitat and the pesticides and, and things around. And also, it's a good time to mention the different types of hive that I have because I've been experimenting over the last 18 years. What type of beehive works best? And it's one of those questions. If you ask 10 different beekeepers, you'll get 15 different answers. So I'm trying everything. I've got actually nine different styles of hive at the moment from uh, the traditional national hives with the frames inside, uh, the French uh, Warre or Warre hives, which don't include queen excluders and they well, they don't have frames, they have, they're called top bar hives. So they've got bars inside and the bees can still build their comb hanging down from the bars, but you don't take, you don't take them out to move them around the frames, but that would be better illustrated with a photograph. So, um, so I have uh, worry hives. I have a horizontal top bar hives that aren't a, a system of boxes stacked up. They're, they're horizontal. They're originally Egyptian. They're used in South Africa quite a lot. And they're actually really good if you want to keep bees um, and have a, a hands-on experience, but also don't want to invest in lots of equipment and because you need very little equipment to maintain them. But again, there's a dedicated YouTube video about that. Um, and I have a Siberian-style log hives that are just hollowed out logs that are more like habitat hives that bees can just move into if they want to. There is a removable cap at the lower end, so if you're feeling very brave, you can reach inside with a, well, ideally a gloved hand and just break off some honeycomb sometimes. <coughs> but it's more like a tithe of perhaps sort of 5% rather than taking the lot each year like you might do with a traditional hive. So there are all these different styles of hives hive around the place. But in, in my arrogance, I think that they're all perfect for bees, but quite often, more often than not, they'll move into somewhere completely unexpected. A swarm will turn up and, as sometimes happens, will move into a pair of old Wellington boots in my shed or into a cardboard box that's sort of above, stored above the car or something. And, and so all these perfect cedar wood 
hives all baited with the essential oils like lavender and lemongrass and honey in there, they'll ignore that and just move into somewhere like, yeah, under the bonnet of Malandrover. I mean, they'll, so they will do what they want. And the times they have done that, I've actually left them and they've, they've thrived. Um, but apart from having bought some bees 18 years ago, which I wouldn't do now, they have just stayed on site and multiplied. And originally, they were the quintessential stripy Italian honeybee that we're all familiar with. But over the years, because I don't control, I don't clip the, the wings of the queen, so, they, so the queen can go and breed with the local black bees. And there actually are some local British black bees in the woods nearby. I haven't seen them, but I know that there must be, because my bees over the years have got darker and darker. Their bodies have got bigger and hairier. And now they're a lot more equipped to deal with the British wet winters than the stripy bees are that usually need lots of insulation and, and care. So they're not as easy to handle, they're a bit more vicious, but I don't handle them so it doesn't really bother me. So they're really good healthy bees that are just, just um, repopulating the area. Um, I'm getting a little bit esoteric there, but if there are any more general questions about honeybees before I move on to uh, the next creature, then ask now. I can always come back to bees again, it doesn't, doesn't have to be sequential, we can, we can move around in terms of subjects. Do I take honey from the hives? Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Honey is a wonderful, wonderful byproduct. It's like a medicine and I treat it as such. I would never sell it because it's just too valuable. And I do use it for myself and to give to friends and family for, for medicinal purposes. But I, I, it's not like a, a commercial product. And I don't take everything from each hive each year, just perhaps maybe 5% or 10% every other year when they're doing really well. So it's more like the purpose of the bees is just for the bees themselves and for pollination, which is quite important in the garden. And the honey is just a, a really, really useful byproduct. Again, pictures of me extracting honey. Okay, so we can come back to bees if you like. I shall go on to the next animal that I introduced to the garden. Very importantly, ducks. I've always loved ducks. I've only had ducks for about five years. The reason I got ducks is because I like to grow lots of salady stuff, all kinds of salady things. And yes, slugs. Slugs love salady things as well. And I noticed that around one of the wildlife ponds, uh, the salady things were thriving, whereas they weren't further away. And I noticed that it was because the frogs were coming out of the pond at night and eating the slugs from all the salady crops and doing a very good job. But I wanted to plant things further away from the pond, so I started putting little piles of rocks and logs so that the frogs and the toads actually could spend longer away from the water and would have somewhere to shelter in the day and they were spreading out across the garden. And this worked quite well, but they still weren't staying on top of the slug prop, uh, population because there just weren't enough frogs, they didn't have enough ponds. And I've always liked ducks, and I thought I would introduce ducks to the garden um, because it said that no one has, was it, no one has a slug problem. They have a duck deficiency. <laughs> and it's, and it's, it's true. It's, um, not everyone's garden is suitable for ducks. But it said that you need about six ducks per acre to keep on top of slugs. So I had two acres. So five years ago, I got 12 rescue ducks. See the nice cute picture of all the ducks coming in the, in the box? <laughs> Brought them in a box. I weren't sure, wasn't sure how old they are, but they've, um, they, they live till about six or seven years old. And I specifically wanted khaki campbells. You can get all kinds of ducks. They, they all do eat slugs, but khaki campbells are the most carnivorous ducks. And they, they do like the occasional nibble of salady things and other plants and grains and pondweed and things, but 
they won't touch any of that until there's not a single slug or a slug egg left anywhere. They, they're very thorough. They go all around the garden, picking off the slugs, taking the eggs from the soil, sifting through it with their lovely beaks. And they, um, they, they do a really, really good job. And the thing is, they, they did do that, and they, they kept right on top of the slug population, but they also ate all the frogs as well. It's a, it's, it's a horrible thing to see. I didn't realize frogs could squeal so loudly, and if I ever heard a frog squealing, I'd run out of the, of the yurts and, and try and frighten the ducks they drop the frog. The, the frog? The frog. They, um, there are still, still some frogs around, but not nearly as many as since I've had the ducks. And I've actually now got different ponds, and I've got different ponds for different purposes. There's one that's netted off from the ducks that the, that the frogs are safe in, and there's supposedly some that are netted off from the geese that the ducks can get into and the geese can't because the... the it, yeah, it's, um, it hasn't really worked, actually. Uh, they, they, um, it's, it sort of works. And Kaki Campbells, as well as, um, as, well as loving slugs, I, I did say they don't like much vegetation, but there's one thing that they just go mad for, and that is the aptly named duck potatoes. I talked a little bit about this last year when I was talking about aquatic perennial vegetables, and it's one of my favourite, no, it's my second favourite aquatic perennial vegetable, my first being watercress. Incidentally, you can watch my video called How to Grow Your Own Watercress <laughs> on my YouTube channel, Rob's Discovery, in case you've forgotten. Um, but the, the other one, it's very, very, very easy to grow watercress. You just buy a bag from a supermarket and plop it in water and it grows. Um, still watch the video though, it's a little bit more in depth than that. Uh, but the, uh, the, the duck potatoes, they have lots of different names. Would you like to see my swamp potatoes? Yeah? Okay, come on then. Come on, ducky. Come on, ducky. Sagittaria sagittifolia. There they are. They're in that wildlife pond. They go by other names too. Arrowheads, or broadleaf arrowhead. Katniss, they're sometimes called in North America. Or duck potato. Come on, ducky. Down you go. Good girl. You can see there's one sticking out above the water just there. And there's another one just here. You can see why they're called arrowheads. You find them most places in the world, actually. Most continents. They grow in water up to about a metre deep. This is extremely shallow. This is about six inches deep. And if the water's any deeper, you can actually harvest them with your toes and then pick them up. But it's very easy in this water. Are you going in? Come on then. Come in. Oh, you like watercress, do you? Oh, I didn't know that. Come on then. <laughs> Incidentally, their flowering time is July and they have lovely white flowers. Or they will do in a couple of months. It's now May, so the bulbs are quite small. They will be four or five times this size if it's a good year. And like with most perennial vegetables, even aquatic ones, you harvest about a third of them each year and then replant the other two thirds and allow them to multiply. This foliage will die back in the autumn time, but you can harvest them 
<laughs> well done, Ducky. I'll take that away from you. All right. Oh, she's already interested. <laughs> oh dear, she's eating her roots. You can harvest them any time from the autumn until the springtime. And after that, it's best to leave them alone to regenerate. And in time, they will cover the surface of this pond, just like the watercress has here. The best way to cook them is to lightly steam them or boil them. And they're a wonderful source of carbohydrates and they've got a nice starchy, crunchy texture. And you use them just like you would potatoes, which is why I suppose they're called swamp potatoes sometimes. But you can grow them in stagnant water. If you've got a pond or a bathtub or anything in the garden, you can just put these little tubers, just bury them in the sediment. You've sort of got to weigh them down because they float, which is what the ducks like to do. They go down once the foliage has died back. They go through the mud, through the sediment with their beaks. The, the potatoes float to the top and the ducks just crunch them up. If you plant one little tuber, you get about 12 little tubers after a year. And like with all perennial vegetables, you harvest two thirds of them, then leave one third in the soil to regenerate. Or you can take them out, keep them in a jar of water, then put them back out again. And you can cook them, you use them like potatoes, they're just very, very small. And you can grow them if you don't have any flowing water. But if you do have slightly flowing water, and when I say flowing, I mean if it rains a lot and the water just doesn't stagnate, then you can grow watercress on top and swamp potatoes underneath, so you can get a double crop. And in that middle section where nothing's growing, you get all the, the wildlife. So it's, it's a good way of getting food from your pond and also wildlife as well. But going back to the ducks, they love duck, duck potatoes. And any questions at this point? I might cover it even if there, there are. Okay, and so that's the main purpose of the ducks. They have a wonderful symbiotic relationship with the forest garden because I don't have to worry about slugs. And yes, they do lay eggs. They do lay eggs and duck eggs are really good. Just gonna take a dramatic sip of water. <laughs> <laughs> the average khaki Campbell duck keeps laying right up until it dies and like chickens it sort of taper off after, after a few years and you get about 298 eggs per duck per year. That's not their primary purpose, their primary purpose is the, the eating the slugs but the, the eggs are a huge bonus and they're really healthy. They have omega-3 and omega-6 oil or at least one of those oils, which is really good if you're vegetarian because otherwise you have to get it from oily fish and other places. Uh, they are about 50% higher in protein than a chicken egg. They keep a lot longer, they keep about nine months because of their thick shells. And they, they have some more benefits that I've written down, but yeah, you can look them up <laughs> or I can in include them later in, in the video. But the thing is, unlike Actually, I, I, I don't like duck eggs very much. They've, they've, a, they've got a slightly stronger taste than chicken eggs. I used to like them, we just had far too many of them and it put me off. But, but what I do with the duck eggs is I pickle them. I just boil them up for 10 minutes and then run them under cold water. The shell slips off and I just stick them in a jar and top them up with malt vinegar. And after a couple of weeks, they, they're pickled eggs. I mean, you can eat them before that, then they're just eggs in vinegar. But, um, <laughs> but they, they keep, a, keep a good long time and they don't taste so ducky then. And I, I eat them all the time as like an emergency food, pickled eggs. But unlike chickens who often lay their eggs in a nice 
nesty little place where, you, where it's easy to find them. Ducks, they just, they just sort of squat down, it plops out of them, and then you'll never find them. Or sometimes it just plops out of them as they're walking around the garden. So it's always a bit hit or miss as to whether I'm actually going to find the duck eggs. But speaking of uh, the symbiotic relationship between creatures, a symbiosis has developed between me and the resident crows that all hang out in the ash tree overlooking the forest garden. Because crows love duck eggs, well they love all eggs actually, and the crows have learned when a duck is about to lay an egg, they're watching for the body language. And there's about a 20 second window of time between when the duck lays the egg and the crow swoops to pick up that egg. And if I happen to be at home at the time or in the garden, I watch the crows that are gathering. The crows are watching the ducks. And then the crow starts to swoop and I got about 15 seconds to charge across the garden and pick up the duck egg before the crow gets it. But it, it's mutually beneficial really because I wouldn't be able to find the eggs if it wasn't for the crows telling me where they were. And also the crows wouldn't have any eggs if it wasn't for the ducks. And sometimes the, sometimes I get there first and the crow sort of oh, gives me the dirtiest look. And sometimes the crow gets there first and just looks at me so cheekily as it just flies away with the egg in its beak. And have you ever seen a crow with an egg in its beak? It's quite impressive how it carries it away without breaking it. Um, and it, I don't know if the crows share them out amongst themselves or if it's first come, first served. I don't, I don't know about crow behaviour. I say crow. Crows are individual. I think I'm thinking about rooks, actually. Was it? If you see a crow... No. If you see crows, it's their rooks. And if you see... Okay. So we're just saying about rooks. So rooks... Yeah, if I remember rookery, then rooks live in a rookery. So the rook, it's, it's not so important, but I was talking about crows when actually I meant rooks because they all live together in the ash tree. And do they share the eggs? Probably not, I don't know. So ducks lay eggs. The eggs are nutritious. Some find them delicious. I do if they're pickled. And that's, that's what the ducks do. Someone ask about foxes. Oh, yeah. yeah, foxes. Well, there are some resident foxes around. And in fact, there is one fox at the moment that is so big, it is the, like the jaws of the fox world. He's like about 20 feet long and six feet, no, I don't know, but he's a, I've, I've seen him. But there, there are some woods nearby, locally known as the Grove. And until last year, it was a wood where pheasants were kept and there was a pheasant shoot a couple of times a year. And the foxes that lived in the woods got very fat on pheasants. And I had 10 blissful years unbothered by foxes because they had so many pheasants to eat, I could let the geese and the ducks and the chickens roam the garden all day without worrying about foxes. I did have to keep them in at night. I built a night enclosure. It's quite a big pen with treadle feeders. They stepped on the, well, they still do. They, the ducks and the chickens step on the pedals and have access to layers pellets whenever they want them. But I hardly have to feed the chickens or the ducks or the geese because there's enough forage in the garden. The layers pellets are just a top up for when slugs are thin on the ground for the ducks and uh, all the creatures that chickens like to eat, if there aren't very many of them, if it's snowing or if it's icy, and when there's not very much nutrition in the, um, in the grass for the geese. Haven't talked about geese yet, running out of time. Um, but so, yeah, so they get shut away at night in a fox-proof enclosure with water and these treadle feeders and lots of uh, dust baths for chickens and things to play with. But 
the woods changed hands last year and it's now like a bushcrafty wood and there are no pheasants there anymore so the fox population is starting to spread out throughout the village but the first place that the foxes came across right next to the woods is my place with all these delicious looking birds so last summertime I lost 15 ducks to a fox and they were so brazen I thought oh, if I'm strimming, strimming the meadow areas that that'll be fine, it'll keep the foxes away but the foxes took ducks from, like, right next to me, just so brazenly walked up and, and took them away. So, as, yeah, there will be a picture in the video of the, my brave cockerel, Huey, who sacrificed himself because the, the fox came and picked up one of my bantams, one of the chickens. And this chicken was so important because she's the mother of all the next generations of ducks because she's so good at incubating the eggs that I put fertile duck eggs underneath this bantam and she would bring up the ducklings and they were nearly the size of her when they hatched out but she had she's being followed around by six or seven ducks and she taught them how to use the feeder she taught them all the best places in the garden and she only lost interest in them and they eventually went on the pond and she couldn't follow them and then she just then she just gave up and said more eggs please and I put more eggs under her and she started again and this fox came along and picked her up and I was shouting at the fox, running towards it, but it wasn't taken in, in notice. It was walking away with her in its mouth. And Huey, the little bantam cockerel, he's tiny, but he, he threw himself in the fox's face and started scratching at it. And the fox dropped the bantam and said, oh, I'll take you instead, and walked away with the cockerel. So unlike drakes, the male ducks that are just horrible and rapey and just don't really, well, they do do good in the fact they eat slugs, but they don't do much good apart from that. Uh, the cockerels, the ones that I have, are really quite gallant and they do sacrifice themselves for their birds. So on this occasion, he, um, he saved this mother chicken. Um, unfortunately, she, she got eaten last week, actually, but that's, uh, <laughs> but, but that's not before she got to bring up two more ducklings. So, um, and those two ducklings are, st are still all right. So, uh, yeah, and um, <laughs> I'm making a joke out of it. It's, yeah, it's, well, it's not, it's not funny, no. It's not funny. It is, it is traumatic, but the, I will mention the geese briefly. There's a lot to say about the geese, but I've had the geese for, is it three or four years now? Four years. Um, I wanted geese at some point because they're a really important part of the forest garden. Uh, three geese can eat as much grass as one sheep. I have four geese. The day before I had four geese, I went to Wells Market with my weekly shopping budget. And in true <laughs> Jack and the Beanstalk fashion, I saw these uh, geese advertised in Tinknell's farm shop and I came home with four geese in the boot of my car instead of my weekly shop. And, I, and they, they weren't too happy about that, uh, <laughs> hissing over the parcel shelf. But they, they, they're very, very much at home now. And they, I introduced them to the garden and the idea was they would walk around all the grass paths so I wouldn't have to mow them every couple of weeks with my petrol mower. And they did a fantastic job. They walked around systematically just mowing all the paths. But then of course, over the coming months or month, they then proceeded to mow all my Swiss chard. They <laughs> mow, mowed all the chicory. They picked every strawberry. They picked every tomato. They don't like tomatoes. They only picked them when I was watching because they knew that it angered me. And they'd pick, they'd pick the tomatoes and spit them out. It's like, what do you think of that? And they, yeah, they, they mowed a lot of chamomile. 
well, everything really. It's like a children's book, and then they mow this. But they still mow the grass, and they do do a good job. And their secondary function in the ecosystem is to protect the ducks from foxes, which they do do. And I had a particularly vicious gander called Beulah, named after my grandmother. <laughs> and he was, um, maybe a month ago now, I came to the garden one morning and I could hear the shrieking. And it's, it's normally the sound the geese make when they found a rat in their grain bucket or a rat trying to eat their layers pellets. They just, they just pick up the rat and usually just neck it back. I mean, they are primarily herbivorous, is that a word? Herbivores, herbivorous. Um, but they are opportunist carnivores as well. And a, a goose will eat, eat a rat in one go. Um, so th they were making the delighted screech they normally make when they eat rats. And as I got closer, I noticed, like, I could see this, this big gander, Beulah. Uh, he was covered in blood and he was fighting this gigantic fox. And the fox was actually not interested in the geese. He was going for the ducks, but the gander kept lunging at him and sort of pecking at his face and beating his head with its wings. They've actually got horny spurs underneath the bottom of their wings. And they can, that's why they can do a bit of damage if they get you on the ground and start beating you with their wings. They can be a bit dangerous. And this, yeah, this gander was covered in blood and so was the fox. So, and it must have been going on for quite some time. And anyway, the fox did, it did run away after a while. It didn't run away when it saw me coming. It just it ran away because the, the goose had finished with it. And um, yeah, so it saved, saved all the animals that day. But the, the goose did die later that day. I think it died from shock because it's just, it had a couple of bite marks in its neck. So it's, they really do do a really good job at protecting all the animals from foxes. So yeah, that, that one sacrificed himself. I've got three geese left now, five chickens, and only six ducks at the moment. But um, hopefully if, if one of the, the chickens goes broody, then I can restock in the springtime by putting some more fertile eggs under her and slowly, slowly build it up again. And hopefully by now, the foxes will have, will have moved on beyond the area because they, there's not very much for them to eat at all. And I do keep the birds healthy, lest that sort of thing happen as well, by putting apple cider vinegar in their water. And speaking about natural treatments, there's one for, for chickens I've been doing for a few years. If you want to naturally prevent worms in chickens, it's um, uh, pumpkin seeds. I do grow pumpkins and I keep the seeds to plant more pumpkins. But if you uh, blend up pumpkin seeds in a liquidizer with something that the chickens find really delicious, like buttermilk or sometimes just butter, and, and then like, leave it out in a, in a mash for them, they will eat it and it prevents and can cure worms in chickens. Um, so that's, that's another natural remedy I use. And the, oft, often because the animals have so much forage, they're, they're self-medicating and they usually find what they need to eat, like different herbs and seeds around the garden. Um, did you have a question as well? What was your question? My question was, you spend a lot of your time on your forest garden. So are you studying it? Is that what you do? Or do you have a job and then you go to your garden? I, I spend an awful lot of time on my forest garden. Do I study it and do I have a job? You mean... I mean, you know, is it part of your... Of your, your... I, I yeah, I suppose what, I mean, if you, by job, if you say what I do for money, yes. it, it has, yeah, it has changed over the years. I used to just be a straight full-time gardener, and that's where I got my money from. And over the years, as 
I found the garden more interesting and other people have found the garden more interesting. I found ways to make money that involve uh, talking about the garden. This is one of them. I make money doing this. Not quite as often as I'd like, but it's, it keeps the car on the road. And again, have I mentioned my YouTube channel yet? <laughs> so, it's, a, it's, it's called Rob's Discovery and it's, it's doing quite well. And if you, every time you watch a, watch a video, I get a penny. Um, so if, if you could watch a few of them, I'll get a few more pennies. And, and I mean, I, I know it, it's a typical British thing not to talk about money, but I'm so open about it. I don't mind saying what I earn. And I've never earned more than about 10,000 pounds a year. But because I also live on the land, it's like a homestead as well as a forest garden. I don't have rent or mortgage, so I don't need as much money as other people. So perhaps if you spend half your income on that, so I've, I've got the disposable, in inverted commas, income of someone who earns 20,000 pounds a year, though I earn about 10,000 pounds a year. Um, but I, I do use the forest garden to make money in terms of doing talks about it, making YouTube videos about it. Some months I'll earn 20 pounds, um, some months I'll earn a thousand, depending on how many people watch the videos. For example, when it gets to the springtime and everyone wants to know about how to harvest rhubarb, the views go up and I might earn a couple of hundred pounds in that month. And then over the winter, when no one's interested in anything, I'll earn nothing. So it sort of swings and roundabouts. So there's the YouTube channel, there's the talks. Um, I, do, I do do tours of the garden on weekends, although this year I've decided to close the garden, just like Willy Wonka closed the gates of the chocolate factory, and it's, uh, it's lying fallow for a year. So I've actually stopped doing the tours this year, but I'm going to start them again next year, and when, when the garden is back to full vigour and it's all looking beautiful again, because it's a little bit neglected at the moment and I'm not that proud of it. My, my beautiful geodesic dome greenhouse blew away in a storm and it's just, it's just um, and that was usually the jewel and the crown of the tour, going in and seeing all the tropical fruits growing and I'm just not that proud of it, so I, I, but I have done tours and they do very well throughout the summertime because everyone's interested, so YouTube videos, talks, tours and I still do actually do some actual gardening for other people from time to time but I've got two or three customers, I used to have 22 around the Chew Valley but since being on Gardener's World, then um, I became a lot more popular with the garden tours and, and the talks. Then I didn't have to do so much physical gardening, so I could then talk about it and make money. But now I am, I'm going back to gardening a bit more so because I like it and it's simple and it gets, keeps me fit. And I, I, yeah, I like doing it. Yeah, yeah, so a nice, a nice balance of different jobs. So I can set my own hours and, um, yeah, it's, it's working so far. The good, yeah, good question. And yeah, that's a good question. How, how self-sufficient are you? Oh, how self-sufficient am I? The question, in theory or in practice? Well, in, it's in theory, I mean, there's no such thing as 100% self-sufficiency because, I mean, there could be, but it's a very difficult thing to do. I mean, for example, I, I'm... I'd go as far as to say I'm growing carbohydrate crops just so I can distill them to make ethanol to put in a generator and you can, you can do everything. I mean, so potentially a hectare of forest garden, the way I've planted it, it could sustain 10 people all year round, but not just for food, but for firewood, uh, for building materials, for growing fibres, for making clothes and rope, and it depends how much time you have. So. The land could easily sustain me and a couple of other people in the state that it's in 
if one were to put the time in to actually do all that stuff. But realistically, how much does it sustain me? Well, this last year, year 11, it really, really worked and it was the best harvest ever. Everything worked. There was, there was fruits of every kind. There were nuts, there were mushrooms, there were all sorts of perennial vegetables. It really worked. But this is the first year I didn't actually harvest anything. I was distracted with other things and I hardly harvested anything. But it would have been, such a, it would have been enough to last the winter right through the springtime. And unlike annual gardening, where you get a glut, usually in the autumn, because you sort of plant things in the spring and then they grow in the summer and you harvest them in the autumn, the forest garden's different in that there's something to harvest in each month of the year. It's just different. I mean, like, like I was saying, there are the fruits of the summer and the, the nuts and the mushrooms of the autumn and the root vegetables of the winter and the salady stuff in the spring. So there's always something to eat. So you, you have to store very little. And if I actually did what I talked about and, and harvested things when I'm supposed to, and actually put the effort in to pick and process all of it, then yes, I could be 100% self-sufficient in terms of food, certainly. Um, I'm about 50% self-sufficient in firewood. I could be 100%, but just the time to, to harvest it and um, split it and store it. And I, incidentally, I grow mostly willow and hazel for firewood because it grows quickly. I, I coppice it on a seven-year rotation. Um, so in theory, not very self-sufficient, but it's become more of a demonstration garden rather than actually a practicing self-sufficient garden. But yes, I could be, but I'm not just because of lack of time and laziness. Um, I, could, <laughs> I could go into that more, but is that a satisfactory answer? Okay. Th we, have, we have, yeah, we've, we've still got seven or eight minutes left, so I haven't talked much about chickens, but then chickens are one of those things. Everyone's had experience with chickens at some point, and if you haven't, then do. You need some outdoor space, but not very much. You can keep chickens in towns and cities. They're, they're the, the ultimate sort of gateway animal to get into livestock, really. And they, although you do have to look after them, and they are quite needy, their needs are quite basic. And anyone can keep chickens. If you want to go down the meat route, you can eat them at the end of their laying life. Or in the meantime, they produce eggs. But they have so many other functions too. They're, I mean, they're charming, they're entertaining but they're also one of the very best soil builders. I mean, chicken manure is 50% nitrogen. You can mix it with anything and it's 50% organic matter. And, it's, and you can, if you have a slightly larger garden, you can use the chicken tractor method, which, well, the meaning of the chicken tractor has changed somewhat lately. It used to be that you have a movable pen and you use the chickens like a rotavator that sort of fertilize the ground and, and weed it and, and you move it around and they create fresh soil. But the, the modern, uh, meaning of the phrase chicken tractor is actually a bit different. You, you call the chickens to an area of the garden you want them to work in and then contain them. One uses so many petrochemical products on the garden to help the plants grow. I mean, fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides, but the chickens do all these jobs. They pick off all the pests from the plants, they fertilize it wonderfully, and they, so you sort of call them, I mean ideally keep them tame with a little bit of grain, but not too much because you want to keep them a little bit hungry to do their job. And you call them to the part of the garden you want them to work in and then contain them for the day and they pick off all the whatever it is you want and then you just let them back to their night enclosures. So that's the, the modern term of the chicken tractor. You sort of put them to work where you want in the garden. And they really, really speed up the process of compost making and you hardly have to feed them. If you have three compost piles, about a cubic meter each, and you have one that the chickens are working on, then one that's sort of 
you're adding to and one that's lying fallow, and then you rotate them, the chickens find about half their own food in the compost heap with worms or beetles, and they scratch through it, they turn it for you, they find their own food, and they just, anyway, there's so many uses for chickens. Um, are there any more questions at, at this, this point? Yes? You have all the animals you need, or are there any that you're considering adding? Do I have all the animals I need, or are there any more I'm considering? I, I have all the types of animals I would like, but I don't have as many of them as I'd like because of the fox. But come the springtime, the, the duck population will increase again. I'd like a few more chickens. I think sort of eight chickens is the ideal number. I think whatever size land you have, eight's the right number, because then you get to know them personally, and it, any more than that, unless you're doing it commercially, they become a bit unmanageable. Um, but 15 ducks, I'd like 15 ducks, 8 chickens and 4 geese would be perfect for me. <laughs> and, and about 4 colonies of healthy honeybees, of which I have 2 healthy colonies at the moment. I had 4 at the beginning of the autumn, but the winter time it got so cold and wet so quickly that 2 of the colonies of honeybees died. I don't know why. I haven't opened up the hives yet to check in case there are any bees in there and it would, the cold would kill them. So I'm going to wait until it warms up, then open the hives and have a look. But there are two strong hives of honeybees left. And you, and you know that they're strong, because if you put your ear to the hive and tap on it, it sounds like a V8 engine revving. It is vroom, vroom, when you tap on the hive. And two still, till, still sound like that. And ironically, it's the two hives that are not undercover. They're completely exposed to the elements. And the wood is rotting. They're actually hives that I set up. I was going to either get rid of the boxes or, or paint them or, or work on them. And whilst they were just resting there, ready to be disposed of or painted, a swarm of bees moved into both of them and they're absolutely thriving. So they must know what they're doing because the hives are exposed, they're falling apart, they've got gaps in, yet the, the hives that were undercover, all nicely insulated, the bees in those have died. So um, yeah, usually wildlife knows best. So yes, I have all the animals I'd like, just not quite the quantity that I would like. Dramatic sip. Ooh. What is your question? Of course you can, no one else is asking anything. I have a new animal in my garden and it's a rat. You have a new animal in your garden and it's a rat? It's a rat. Just the one? I don't know. I've never seen one, I've never seen it once. It was about five inches, whatever. Yeah, they get quite big, don't they, rats? It's a sort of a, yeah, immature, I should think. Yeah, did you just want to tell me or do you have a question about it? <laughs> What do you think is attracting it? What food source is there? I have bird feeders. Ah, the bird feeders, yes. And they came to feed off the food that had been chucked out. Yeah, rats love bird feeders. There's just enough to keep them interested. And, they, and the trouble is, once you get one rat, the rest will follow and then they'll, they'll move in. Yeah. Does anyone else have a good answer to this question? What would you do? If you're not going to use poison, what would you do if you had. Jack Russell, yeah, good answer. Oh, do I have a problem with rats? Um, I have had, and actually I went down the route of, well, there are two things I did about rats. Um, one, you might not want to do, the other you might want to do. Uh, one is I, every day I bring my mum's dog up, who's a, what is he, like a, yeah, a mixture, staffy cross, mongrel cross, something, like that. and I'd hold his collar 
and the rats were quite um, like clockwork actually. They came out at the same time each day to just get the little bits of food that the, that the ducks or chickens had spilled from their treadle feeders. I just let go of his collar and you have one rat at a time. And by the time he, he just picked it up and shook it and it was dead. And then the rest of the rats scattered. But then I, if I did that each day, slowly he got them one at a time until it was on top of them. But that's not necessarily a solution for you. The other thing I did is about three years ago, I got a, um, a multi-catch rat trap that it's like a, it's a, it's a humane trap, but the rats go in through like a little trap door with, with bait inside and it just keeps them contained till you can do something with them. And so I was waiting till it filled up with rats and then I would empty them into a, a milk churn. And this, this sounds horrible, it's not. I, I had food and bedding in the milk churn. I just waited till I had a significant number of rats to make the journey worthwhile. And then, then I would <laughs> yeah, take them to Banwell. Um, <laughs> took, took them to a remote location and released them. Did they come back? I don't know. I did, this with, I did it with mice a few years before, and I painted a white stripe on their back to see if they'd come back. And I, I, took, them, I took them further. Well, to start with, I released them in the village. Then after about five or six weeks, I'd start catching the same mice with little white stripes on their back. And then I took them further afield and then didn't, um, I didn't, yeah, about five miles, I think. But then I haven't heard any rumors about these rare mice with white stripes on their back. <laughs> Chew Valley Specials. <laughs> yeah, Chew, Chew Valley Specials. So I don't know if that's, I mean, yes, you, a, a dog, a, well, removing the food source can often get rid of rats. It sounds a good idea, though, the rat Yeah, a multi-catch humane rat trap. Yeah. yeah, wait till you've got several, then just drive with them somewhere into the, into the woods. They can go and... Pardon? A donation. A donation to someone, yes. Mm. There's probably time for one more question before the kettles go on, I would say. Yes, sir. An answer, actually. You can buy lion scat or lion urine. Lion scat or lion urine. Gets rid of cats, rats, dogs and neighbours. Where do you buy this miraculous stuff? Was there a definitive answer to where to get it? The internet, just type it into the internet. Perhaps you could do a trade for a bucket of rats. For a oh yeah, bucket of rats for a yeah, bucket of lion urine. Yeah, um, why not? I'm all for trading. Speaking of trading, I, the one thing I'd like to say about the duck eggs is I do have surplus duck eggs. And I used to take them to the Good Earth Whole Food Shop in Wells and exchange them for my weekly shop. And, and it often, the price of the uh, duck eggs would, be, would cover the price of the shopping I needed that week. And because there was lots growing in the garden, I wouldn't need very many things, just things that weren't growing in the garden. But um, it, was, it was a really good exchange, and it, I used to love doing that. And I may do it again when I have more ducks. Um, I will be around for a few minutes afterwards. If you have any more questions, you can um, come and ask me. I might just lurk over here. But I've come to the end of my hour. So thank you very much. It's really nice to be here again. And next year, I've been booked in for next February, talking about, I haven't been told yet, or maybe I have, but oh yeah, I'll work it out near the time. So hopefully see some of you then, and see some of you in a minute. So thank you very much indeed. <laughs>